we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands, just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the center. And today we're going to talk about the uh, interplay between illegal immigration and legal immigration, or at least one of the ways they affect one another. And this issue of benefits given to illegal immigrants soaking up time and capacity of the government and thus delaying benefits that would have gone to legal immigrants is something that's come up before. And that's what we're going to talk about in some more detail. But as background, DACA, the uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the program that Obama said he could not legally do and then just illegally did it anyway in the run-up to the 2012 election, soaked up a lot of administrative time, specifically of the agency within Homeland Security called U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. They're the ones that do green cards and work permits and naturalizations and all of that. And the New York Times actually wrote a story on this, much to their credit, in 2014. And what they found was that the group of legal immigrants that was facing extended waits and limbo because of the illegal immigration amnesty program, because that's what it is, a kind of quasi-amnesty, were the spouses and children of U.S. citizens. The one category of immigrants that everybody agrees, as long as it's legitimate, should be allowed into the United States. In fact, the story in the New York Times now, what is this now, nine years ago, more than that, quoted an immigration lawyer, and I seldom find myself quoting immigration lawyers approvingly, but this was Gregory Chen, who's a lobbyist for the Immigration Lawyers Association, said, quote, U.S. citizens petitioning for green cards for immediate relatives are a high, if not the highest priority in the way Congress set up the immigration system, end quote. And they're the ones who, this, these many years ago, because of the solicitude the Obama administration was giving to illegal immigrants, they're the ones who saw their weights, the sort of administrative paperwork weight, go from five months or less to 15 months. So you wanted to bring your wife that you married overseas into the United States, you ended up waiting sometimes more than a year more than you would have otherwise, precisely because of the programs that the then Obama administration was doing to give benefits to illegal aliens. Well, as in so many other areas of immigration, the Biden administration has basically taken the Obama administration's abuses of immigration law as a starting point and dialed them up to 11. And so we're going to have in studio Elizabeth Jacobs on our staff to talk about 
what is going on now. And she has a blog post on our site. It's called USCIS Ombudsman Confirms Biden Policies Hobble Legal Immigration System. It's on our site at cis.org. We'll also include a direct link in the show notes. And it takes as a starting point a report from the USCIS Ombudsman. She'll explain what that is. And, you know, before your eyes glaze over, yes, it's another government report, ho-hum, but this report actually gives insight into the ways that different policies of the Biden administration to help illegal aliens are, in fact, clogging up the system for people who are following the rules. So thanks for coming in, Liz. And if you could just sort of set the background of what this report was and why it's telling us something interesting. Hi, thank you, Mark. So the USCIS Ombudsman is a separate independent office. It is located in the Department of Homeland Security, but outside USCIS. And one of their primary functions is to issue a report to Congress annually to tell Congress what issues USCIS is dealing with internally or administratively and provide recommendations. Sort of a watchdog kind of thing, if you think about it, right? It's different from the inspector general, but it's a similar kind of thing. It is different from the inspector general in one main way. They also work heavily with aliens or individuals who are seeking services from USCIS to be a liaison for certain high priority cases. Okay. But they are independent. They are not controlled by the director of USCIS at all. What was interesting about this year's report is largely confirmed what the Center of Immigration Studies and I personally have been saying since January 2021. And it's that the Biden administration's expansive policies have interfered with USCIS's ability to administer the legal immigration system. And so what are some of the areas you'd broken it out about what particular things this administration was doing that was causing problems for legal immigration? What are some of those policies that they're well, doing? I would like to premise that in January 2021, USCIS was facing a lot of administrative challenges already. It had endured severe financial strain following the COVID-19 pandemic and the pause of international travel. USCIS is primarily a fee-funded agency. 95% of its operations are funded by fees. So when folks stopped traveling abroad or internationally into the United States, stopped applying for benefits from the agency, the agency immediately lost a significant amount of money. The agency also spent almost four years during the Trump administration defending its policies and litigation caused a lot of financial strain to the agency. It also lost a lot of manpower because of the pandemic and other related issues. So it was not in a great situation to begin with in January. However, the Biden administration since then has pursued many policies that have expanded the humanitarian portfolio and prioritized just specific form types which it found to be politically favorable. And these policies have resulted in increase in wait times for many other categories. Okay. So what's some examples? What's one of the things well, that they did? The most significant policy the Biden administration has implemented that has strained the agency is its abuse of parole. Mm -hmm. For those who are not familiar with parole, parole is a limited authority for the Department of Homeland Security to bring in aliens temporarily if they meet 
an urgent humanitarian reason or significant public benefit. So these are people who otherwise wouldn't, they don't have any right to come in. They're inadmissible, but the president or the department gets to let people in for specific exceptional reasons. Exactly. And the Biden administration, instead of paroling aliens in on a case-by-case basis, which is how Congress designed parole to operate, they've created programs to allow hundreds of thousands of aliens to enter the United States, receive work authorization, and remain in the United States for maybe two to three-year periods, but renewable terms of parole. And these adjudications are operated by USAS. Uh, USAS needs to adjudicate these applications and then also adjudicate their work authorization applications. Generally, parolees must demonstrate economic need in order to receive work authorization. Some, such as Ukrainian parolees, are able to work automatically, but that is not true across the board. But most of the others will get it. They just have to jump through some hoops, basically, to get it. But the point is the USCIS is the one who's overseeing the hoops. Correct. Nearly all work authorization applicants based off of parole receive work authorization. Few parolees do not need to work in order to live in the United States comfortably. So in other words, all these parole grants, and it's hundreds of thousands. In fact, one of our colleagues, Art Arthur, has calculated it could be as much as 1.4 million people got parole during this administration. All of those people have to be processed by USCIS on top of the regular immigration flow. That's correct. USCIS has created parole programs for nationals from Afghanistan, Ukraine, Colombia, Cuba, El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua, Venezuela. And they've also expanded the pre-existing Central American Minors Program that was created under the Obama administration. All of this must be administered by USAS. And that takes away from their ability to administer legal programs that Congress has authorized, such as H-1B applications. Right. And that list of countries is only the list at while we're recording this, quite frankly. They could just make up more stuff tomorrow and have parole for even more programs. And USCIS has to adjudicate that and doesn't get any extra money for it. Is that correct? No, but parolees do pay work authorization application fees. Okay. But that is just for the work authorization, not for processing the parole. Correct. Correct? Yeah, okay. So in in other words, basically what happened is the administration through this policy, and then you're going to talk about some others, just dumped an entire stack of extra stuff into the inbox of USCIS and said, figure it out. Exactly. Another area where the Biden administration has expanded USCIS's workload is its expansion of temporary protected status, or TPS. USCIS ombudsman cited the increased demand for TPS as a significant challenge for the agency, stating that processing work authorization for these populations itself is a never-ending task for the agency. Interesting. It shouldn't be a never-ending task because temporary protective status should be temporary. Hmm. It's typically granted in 18-month periods and must be renewed or extended by the DHS secretary. However, There are currently 16 countries that hold TPS designation. We won't read the list of all of them now. You can find it online if you want. And the Biden administration, however, has expanded the population to historic levels by extending or redesignating TPS for every country that's held a designation at the time that 
President Biden took office, as well as designating new countries for TPS. The problem with this, however, is that some of the TPS designations are almost 25 years old. They're based off of humanitarian issues that have long passed and are no longer relevant to the countries at issue, and they're no longer justified by the requirements under the INA. Because TPS, is like the name suggests, supposed to be for a temporary issue. For instance, years ago, there was a hurricane, Hurricane Mitch. This is a quarter century ago now. And they gave illegal immigrants who were already here from Honduras and Nicaragua this temporary status. The point was, your countries are you know, basically on their backs now because of the hurricane. So we're going to give you a breather and then we're going to send you home. Except they're still here a quarter century later. I mean, these people have become grandparents at this point and they're still here. I remember reading one of the Federal Register notices for Honduras, a renewal, because they renew these things all the time, and that's what creates a lot of the work. USCIS has to keep renewing these work permits. They justified it for Honduras by saying, well, sure, the hurricane has passed, but now there's an infestation of coffee rust, some kind of harmful thing on the coffee plants in Honduras, and that's why we're going to give these people legal status for another 18 months in the United States. It's absurd. It's a pretext to not enforce the law against these people. Exactly. At this point, many TPS holders have held temporary protected status for many years, and TPS has become a de facto administrative amnesty rather than what statute requires, which is temporary protection in the case of an armed conflict or natural disaster that is meant to be temporary, so not a long-term solution or not a long-term immigration status. Except that the problem, of course, is with a lot of government programs is, uh, you probably, you may not remember this, but there was a Spanish-American war tax on the phone bills, everybody's phone bills, until just a few years ago. Spanish-American war was in 1898. Congress added a tax to, I forget the details of it, but that tax did not go away for almost like 120 years. So that's the kind of thing we're seeing here. It's just no question. The problem is that in some sense, if you're going to amnesty somebody and just give them a green card, then USCIS's job is not done necessarily, but it's mostly done. Whereas if you're doing this kind of Mickey Mouse amnesty, you are forcing USCIS to constantly, like you said, constant churn of work in renewing these programs for people. Exactly. It's for the same beneficiaries too. So every 18 months, the same beneficiary has to submit paperwork to the agency. So it's not necessarily a new group of people. And how many people are we talking about that have TPS at this point, roughly? Approximately 700,000. Yeah, great. So what other programs the administration's doing that's causing problems for USCIS? Another significant issue is the Biden administration's enforcement priorities. Their priorities, which have limited the class of aliens that ICE can initiate enforcement actions against, and also has limited what cases ICE can bring in front of an immigration court, has caused the USCIS affirmative asylum backlog to spike significantly since 2021. Now, what's that mean? What is affirmative asylum? Affirmative asylum process refers to asylum applications that have been submitted directly to USAS proactively 
by an individual for adjudication rather than as a defense to removal or deportation from the United States in expedited removal proceedings or normal removal proceedings. So when an alien is in immigration court, that is typically referred to as a defensive asylum claim. So he comes across the border illegally, turns himself in, is sent to immigration court, basically to be deported, to put into removal proceedings is the word, the phrase they use. And then he says, okay, here is the reason you shouldn't deport me. I want asylum. Exactly. And those cases are handled by the Department of Justice and the Executive Office of Immigration Review. So the immigration courts, not USCIS. So an affirmative asylum claim is when you are already here, usually on some legal status, right? In other words, you're a tourist or a student. There's a coup in your home country. Your uncle was the minister of something and he was executed. And you're like, boy, this is not safe for me to go back. I'm looking up USCIS in the phone book and I'm calling him up and say, hi, I want asylum, please. Exactly. The affirmative caseload looks a lot different than the defensive caseload. Okay. There are people who are in the United States and aren't being engaged by the agency for enforcement reasons already. So they could, they could be many reasons. They could be students here. They could be tourists here. And they affirmatively apply with USCIS in order to receive asylum. Right. So why have those numbers spiked? Well, that's because the lead attorney with ICE in the office of the principal legal advisor instructed ICE attorneys or prosecutors to cancel cases that do not meet Secretary Mayorkas's incredibly narrow enforcement priorities. So these are cases, they're illegal immigrants, but they aren't like terrorists or rapists. And so the administration is telling ICE, end the deportation cases against them. Exactly. Cancel the cases. It was used as a tactic to try to minimize the immigration court's backlog and reduce the work that ICE attorneys must do in order to finalize these cases. However, what that has done is transferred asylum applications that would have been considered by the courts over to USCIS. So when their cases are canceled, Mm -hmm but they still want to apply for asylum and receive a green card and a pathway to citizenship. In order to do that, they have to apply affirmatively now. So another whole stack of work dumped into the inbox of USCIS that wasn't there before. Exactly. Interesting. Also, the Department of Homeland Security issued a regulation in March of 2022 that transferred border cases over to USCIS's asylum officers for final adjudication. That rule has been implemented in small stages and is currently paused because of resource constraints, but that process has the ability to undermine the USCIS Asylum Division entirely. USCIS in their fee rule estimated it would cost the agency over $425 million more million a year to implement mm-hmm. just to adjudicate more cases. So this would be for border crossers who are typically considered by immigration judges. Right. In other words, they would turn themselves in. They're sent to Border Patrol, sends them to ICE. ICE puts them in immigration proceedings before a judge, which is in the Department of Justice, not in USCIS. Interesting. Least surprisingly, the USCIS ombudsman attributed the crisis on the southern border to the spike in affirmative cases as well. And that's because they had to transfer asylum officers that typically work on the affirmative caseload over to the border to hear credible fear cases. So oh, they're even they're working with even fewer 
officers in this caseload, despite the fact that the backlog is growing historically. Unbelievable. So what else? Was there one more thing? Yeah. Was there another thing? Yeah. So the USCIS ombudsman reported that this backlog has grown from about 325,000 at the end of fiscal year 2020 to now over 842,000 cases and has estimated that application processing will take close to a decade for applications that are submitted this year. Wow. So this is for the affirmative asylum backlog has more than doubled, take close to 10 years if you apply now. And this is a different asylum backlog, I just want to stress, than the one in the immigration courts. So this is basically one more way that asylum is just, frankly, unsustainable, whether it's the defensive process or the affirmative process. I mean, obviously, the U.S. CIS ombudsman isn't saying this, but I'm saying this. It seems pretty clear this is not a sustainable way to run an asylum system. By the end of the Biden administration's first term, we are expecting that backlog to exceed 1 million cases. And that is... This is just the affirmative Just the affirmative backlog. And that is astounding because this does not include most border crossers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Unbelievable. So uh, any other policies that are causing these problems for USCIS? Yes. The USCIS ombudsman also accredited some of the agency's growing backlogs to USCIS's general priorities which specifically the Biden administration has prioritized employment-based immigrant visa adjustments and naturalization applications over the adjudication of nearly all other case types, Hmm. notably tasking itself with ensuring that every available employment-based immigrant visa was made available to fill what it called employment shortfalls this year. Right. But that has resulted in other caseloads processing times spiking. So that's not necessarily extra work. But what that is, is if you were trying to bring your relatives here, you just have to wait longer because if some tech company wants to get a green card for somebody, they're now given first priority. Exactly. And because USAS is a fee-based agency with finite resources, the result is what the ombudsman called drifting priority dates. How so? What's that mean? So essentially claiming that it's made progress working on backlogs and some types while others get have, longer. Yeah. So right. it's the so backlog, robbing Peter to pay Paul, basically. Exactly. The processing times and backlog issue is not disappearing. It's just changing. Right. Interesting. So like you said, USCIS is almost all funded by fees. So can't they just charge more and hire more people? What's the issue here? That is how it, USCIS is supposed to operate. But the report identified USCIS's inability to collect adequate fees as a primary cause to these issues. And that is also a self-inflicted issue by the Biden administration. So they're not collecting it or what's the problem? Well, every two years, USCIS is supposed to issue a regulation that accounts for all of the costs the agency incurs in adjudicating all of the foreign types it processes. Now, the point of this is supposed to be Each form type obviously has different things you have to do and will take up different amount of time. So they're supposed to kind of figure out what does it actually take to process this particular form and therefore attach a fee to that that reflects the actual amount of work it takes. Is that correct? Exactly right. Yeah. But the problem here is the last time USCIS updated its fees was in 2016, which is... Almost a decade ago. 
It does not reflect the accurate cost of adjudication anymore. And of course, you know, prices haven't gone up since then, have they? <laughs> if you've gone to the um, grocery store, I've calculated store, about a 24% wow. inflation since wow. 2016. That's general inflation, but still, yeah. And so they're still charging 2016 prices for 2023 services. And they're not paying their people at 2016 salaries, are they? They are not. Yeah. <laughs> but how does this relate to the Biden administration's policies? Well, what the 2023 Ombudsman report did not mention is that USAS did, in fact, finalize a fee schedule in 2020 to reflect current costs and limit fee waiver eligibility where they determined it was inappropriate or unnecessary. The Biden administration, however, chose to scrap this fee schedule in favor of issuing their own. So Mm -hmm. that 2020 fee update was never Never implemented. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the proposal that they submitted suppresses fees for certain case types, such as naturalizations, but increased fees dramatically for other case types, specifically for employers in the United States who sought to petition for foreign workers. Mm -hmm. And that fee schedule, while having many of its own issues, still has not been finalized. The Biden administration announced in July that it probably won't be issuing that new rule until March 2024. The problem with that is that in 2020, the Trump administration publicized that it will lose approximately $1 billion a year until it finalizes a new rule. So in other words, charging the old prices was costing them a billion a year. Exactly. And it's got to be more now because of all the extra work that you've said that they're having to do. Exactly. Do we know why they didn't just put into place the rule and finalize it more quickly? Because are they coming up with new tweaks to it or what? It just seems to me this is an obvious thing as far as just running the agency efficiently that you're going to you know, raise the fees to reflect what things actually cost. The Biden administration maintained the old fee waiver policy from the Obama administration, right. which allowed many different applicants to receive immigrant benefits for free or Uh, lower costs. And the 2020 fee schedule was subject to a legal challenge. So the Biden administration, instead of defending the Trump administration's fee proposals, decided to go with their own. And that one reflects their prioritizations and also maintains the fee waivers. So the issue isn't so much how much is charged for different applications, although maybe that's part of it. But the main thing is the Trump administration increase in fees, proposed increase in fees, wasn't waiving enough people's fees. Exactly. (laughs) The Trump administration issued their fee rule under a beneficiary pays model where each form type was charged what the agency determine that adjudication would cost. The Biden administration's version is more of an ability to pay model where Uh, they transfer the costs over to the folks that they believe have the larger pockets, so employers or investors. So essentially, the deeper pockets are subsidizing the immigration benefits for other people. Exactly. Interesting. What's most concerning about their fee rule proposal is that it will be charging employers $600 for every petition or application filed in order to fund the asylum program. Interesting. interesting. Because the asylum program, 
also does not charge any fees. That is an, another difference from the Trump administration's rule. They would have imposed a nominal $50 fee for asylum applications mm-hmm. that could be waived from a fee waiver if someone demonstrated an inability to pay. The Biden's fee rule proposal removes that fee and instead charges U.S. businesses $600 for every form filed. Interesting. So basically the Biden administration perspective is that a person applying for asylum in principle should not have to pay even a nominal fee, even if they can't pay it. Exactly. Interesting. But that still doesn't answer why they've kicked the can down the road on raising the fees. In other words, whatever their cockamamie perspective on how to do fees is, why wouldn't they just put it in place as soon as possible so they could increase the revenue flow sooner? Do we know why they're not doing it? I mean, Or even uh, sort of speculation? My speculation is two main reasons. One, resource constraints within the agency. The agency is experiencing historic backlogs, as we discussed. And second- Wait, wait, wait. Push- Just before you get to the second. So they're so overwhelmed, they can't even get the paperwork through to increase the revenue to help them get less overwhelmed. Exactly. Wow. And then the second reason is pushback from the general public on their proposal because of the transfer of the financial burden from a beneficiary pays model to ability to pay model has infuriated people from both sides of the aisle. Interesting. So in other words, what you're saying is business lobbyists are complaining about it. It sounds like that's what the complaint is. In order to publish a regulation, including the USAS's fee rule, they must publish their proposal in the federal register and the public has an opportunity to comment on their proposal. They're likely trying to respond to these comments. Oh, I see. Because they have to respond to all of them. And if lobbying groups, you know, engineer the submission of hundreds of thousands of comments, that is throwing sand in the gears. Exactly. And USCIS has to mm-hmm. go through each one of those and say something about it. Interesting. Interesting. So did the USCIS Ombudsman's report that you're basing a lot of this on that gives us some insight that the administration otherwise would not want us to have? Did they make recommendations that would actually make a difference, or were they basically kind of covering the administration's behind in their report? Well, the USCIS ombudsman largely made inadequate recommendations to address these quote-unquote root causes. They stressed that USCIS needs to increase its staff size, which it has, but that's, that's a solution that addresses a symptom, not the cause. Right. Expand its use of technology, which I think everyone can agree with. Sure. And then also ask for more appropriations from Congress in order to address the quote-unquote long-standing challenges for the immigration system that the immigration events of 2022 have caused. So what, I mean, this is a whole separate show, I guess, but just in a briefly, you know, USCIS is almost all funded by fees. Uh, a few little parts of it, I think E-Verify is funded by congressional appropriations. But is that a good idea? In other words. Would it make more sense to simply move to a appropriations model separate and unattached from the fees? Or what do you think about that? I mean, I know there's arguments, I think, in either direction. What are your thoughts on that? There are arguments on both sides. My view is that it's not appropriate to have the immigration system be paid for by U.S. taxpayers and that the policy that Congress has set up has emphasized that immigrants should be self-sufficient. So this is the immigration system should be self-sufficient too, in a sense. Yeah, the legal immigration system. Yeah. Interesting. That's actually a good way to put it. Yeah, that not only should immigrants be pulling their own weight, but the legal immigration system itself should be pulling its own weight. 
Yes, our immigration system should be designed to benefit our country as a whole, not to be another drain on U.S. taxpayers. Interesting. Okay, well, good. Any last thoughts, Liz? In our view, if the USCIS leadership is serious about bolstering the legal immigration system and maintaining reasonable processing times for immigration services, it has to focus its resources on programs that have been authorized by Congress. It cannot keep creating programs that are not authorized by Congress. Well, the administration just keeps creating them anyway, and USCIS is kind of the one left holding the bag instead of dealing with what should be their job, which is processing green card applications and citizenship applications and what have you. Thank you, Liz, for walking us through this. One more way that the administration's policies promoting and facilitating illegal immigration are causing problems, not just for communities like New York that's complaining about the costs and what have you, but even for the functioning of the legal immigration system, illegal immigration is creating burdens and difficulties. If this gets any better in the future, maybe we'll have you back, Liz, to talk about it. If this increase in fees ever goes into effect or whatever it is, we'll check back with you and see if things have gotten any better or if they've gotten worse. And I kind of know which way I think it's likely to go, but we'll find out in the future. Thanks for coming in. And finally, I just wanted to draw your attention to a blog post that our superstar Todd Benzman posted this week. It's called A Cynical Shell Game. And it's sort of a play on words because what he's doing is drawing attention to an effort by the Biden administration to declare a kind of shellfish in the Rio Grande. It's called the Mexican fawn's foot mussel. Declare it endangered as a means of forcing Texas to remove the buoys that it has put in a section of the Rio Grande to make it hard to cross illegally there. It's kind of like a a wall, but in the water. It's proven very effective. None of the the people, aliens are not going over it or under it or around it. They're staying away from it altogether. It's a very effective means of marine security. They're used in harbors and the Navy uses them. And commercial facilities use these kind of round rolling buoys that you can't really get over. And there's a net underneath, so you can't get under. We've published some about this. It's in the news everywhere. And the administration doesn't like it. I mean, anything that Texas is doing to try to slow down the illegal entry of illegal immigrants is something this administration is against. And so this is one of the tactics is to try to declare this species of muscle that more than 30 years ago, they had some report on at the Fish and Wildlife Service and haven't really done anything or paid the slightest bit of attention to until now. Completely coincidentally, apparently, it's a cynical attempt to use environmental law, to abuse environmental law for you know non-environmental related purposes. And Todd, in his blog post that we'll have a link in the show notes, goes on to say, look, if they were really interested in the damage that's being done to the Rio Grande and the area around it, then they would be enforcing the immigration laws because he points out that the areas near some of these migrant camps on the Mexican side waiting to come over are contributing to the growth of this invasive species of hyacinth that literally covers parts of the river so that there's no air or sun or anything that can get below the surface. It's a, we have a picture of it. It's really kind of 
shocking. It's like a carpet, a green carpet of weeds choking the river. And also just walking back and forth across the river, as Todd pointed out, if there were any shellfish there in the shallower areas of the river, they're just broken shells now because people are tramping back and forth, back and forth in mass numbers in response to the Biden administration's invitation to immigrate illegally. And probably the most arresting environmental damage caused by this administration's immigration policies is something that apparently the people down near Brownsville, this is in South Texas, call the mattress. And there's a picture of it in Todd's blog post, and he actually referred to it in an earlier video as well. What happens is when people illegally cross the river, they then change their clothes and usually dump the wet clothes, put on dry clothes that they brought with them, and then go and turn themselves into the Border Patrol so that at Biden's orders, they'll be released into the United States and basically never have to leave. Well, if it's five or 10 people, it doesn't matter. There's a few pieces of clothing. Mass illegal immigration that this administration has facilitated and encouraged creates massive amounts of this trash. And there is so much of this garbage and discarded clothing and everything else in this area that's called the mattress, probably in other places as well, that it has created this thick layer that, like a mattress, that kills everything underneath it and is you know, going to cost, assuming that there's the money or the will to clean it up, cost millions to get rid of. These environmental damages in the border area are something the administration is utterly unconcerned with, and yet it's cynically using, attempting to use a endangered species designation in order to prevent better immigration enforcement, at least on the part of Texas, which would have the effect of actually improving the environment and improving the condition of the Rio Grande by ending this unnatural flow of people illegally across it. It's kind of discouraging, but it's the kind of thing we have come to expect from this administration, which is hell-bent on not just encouraging and not just removing the obstacles to, but actually facilitating illegal immigration to significant extent. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Gregorian, your host. Please rank, uh, rate, and review us if your podcast platform permits that. And uh, whether it does or not, feel free, if you have any complaints or compliments or anything else, to email us at center at cis.org. I hope you'll tune in next time.